Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Mosiah 18 to 24. So let's begin with a little question. What exactly did you promise to do when you, when you entered the waters of baptism? What does that covenant entail? And how are we doing with that? Let's, uh, let's look at chapter 18, and we're going to pick up our story at the Waters of Mormon with Alma teaching this group of people who, by the time we get to the end of the chapter, is going to end up with 450 people. So this is a significant size. Look at chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 8. And it came to pass that he, that's Alma, he said unto them, Behold, here are the waters of Mormon, for thus were they called. And now as ye are, let's list these, here are the steps. So the precursor to entering into this covenant, A, you are desirous to enter into this fold, to come into the fold of God. And you're desirous to, so enter the fold, you're desirous to be called the children of God, you're desirous to, or sorry, you're willing now to bear one another's burdens that they may be light, you're willing to uh, mourn with those that mourn, and to comfort those that stand in need of comfort. So far, so good, right? It's, we have these desires to come into the fold of God, be called, uh, called his people, these three things. It's kind of hard, we're not perfect at that, but it's doable, we, we can keep working with this. And then he throws this in here. And to stand as a witness, or to stand as witnesses of God, so we're going to be a witness of God at all times, in all things, and in all places that we may be. How long? Even until death. Hmm. That's kind of a that's kind of a significant thing because the word all implies what? This is a hundred percent commitment. This isn't, you'll notice he didn't say, you're gonna try your hardest to do all of these things. He said you're willing to do all these things. And, and you're, you're desiring, this is, this is a bar that he just set for us up at the level of perfection. He told us you're, you're promising basically to be perfect. That's what standing as a witness of God at all times and in all places, or in all things and all places that you may be in, even until death. That's what that means. <sighs> Quick question for you. Why would a perfect, all-knowing, all-loving, compassionate God 
ask imperfect people like me and you to make promises that he and you both know you can't keep. It feels on on the surface when you look at it at that level, it feels like we're being set up for failure. It's like promise that you're going to do all of this and you're like, okay, at age eight for many of us, yeah, I'll do that. And now we get older and we say, uh, that's not going very well for me. There are times where I have seasons where I'm doing some of these things really well. Not perfectly, but I'm doing really well. Other times where my desire is really high and others where it's waning, it's low, and I struggle and I wrestle. And so why didn't God have the covenant wording be, just just try your hardest. Do your best to do these things. Why did he take that off the table and say, nope, your covenant responsibility here is that's the target. I, I don't know the real answer to that question, but I have a hunch that a part of that answer is if the covenant in, implies just simply trying to be to be good, to be the very best I can, well, all of a sudden, I don't need Jesus anymore. I, I don't need Christ for me to just try to do my very best. My very best may not be very good, but I can do my very best. Brothers and sisters, the whole point of this covenant is to establish a connection with Christ. That's the whole point. This is the expectation. It is 100%. It is perfection. That's the point. You, I mean, I'm, this, this won't be a shocker, you, and let me point to myself too, you cannot keep that covenant. You can't do it. Hate to break it to you. Here's the key. You can keep that covenant. That's you with a capital Y, if you haven't noticed. That's you. You and the Savior combined can keep this covenant. Take Jesus out of the mix, and I'm hopeless. I can do this sometimes in some things, in some places that I'm in, down to death. I can sometimes do this. Without Jesus, I'm I'm never going to be able to do this. With Jesus, in a covenant relationship with Christ, I'm combining his perfection with my imperfection. All of a sudden, we can keep this covenant because I'm no longer alone. That's the whole point of a baptismal covenant, is to bring people into the fold of God, into the arms of mercy that uh, the Savior is inviting them into to say, it's okay. I know you're not perfect, but I am. My love for you is perfect, and if you keep doing everything you can in your part of the covenant, Jesus makes up the difference. Let's think about the covenant we make at baptism and the words that are used. When you are baptized, your name is used, but notice that the covenant is actually made in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. It's actually the covenant's not made in your name. So 
the power of the covenant is wrapped up in the identity of the Godhead. What Tyler was talking about is, in some ways, we are being invited into a covenant that is actually underwritten by the God of the universe. He's actually, in some ways, making the covenant with us. It's, a, it's his name that makes possible all that we can do. And what's interesting here is God is a witness for himself at all times, all things, all places, and he will never die. And he's invited us to join in his identity, in his name. Notice that when we are baptized, we are taking upon ourselves a new name. In fact, we learned about that in King Benjamin's speech. We see it here in, in, with Alma's people. They've taken upon themselves the name of Jesus Christ. And for all of us who've taken upon ourselves that name, when we get to the pearly gates, it is because we have the name of Christ written upon us that we will be allowed in. Because really only Jesus is going to be allowed in. He's the only one that actually is fully qualified. But if we take our name, his name upon us, and we have joined with him, then the fullness of his perfections, the fullness of his love, the fullness of his righteousness, all of that uh, allows us to be entered in. In fact, it's interesting, the word atonement in the ancient Hebrew actually means to cover over. And we all have these sins that kind of spot our garments and make us not clean. The atonement cleans us, covers us. And with Jesus, we are now able to enter into his presence clean and like him, because we have been with him and we have his name. So, to reiterate one thing here, if this is a list of perfection, huh, I wonder if we could look at the list as descriptors or characteristics or attributes of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Maybe he's the only one who perfectly bore burdens. Maybe he's the only one who perfectly knows what it looks like and feels like and, and is to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. He is clearly the only person who ever did that. So the covenant is underwritten by God. It's, it's God from heaven who holds worlds without number in his hand looking down at this planet saying, I care about each one of those individual people as imperfect, as flawed, as weak as you and I may be. We, it's not like we've got a whole bunch to offer the Lord. It doesn't, even if we offered everything, Benjamin says, we're still going to be unprofitable servants. But it's God who comes and offers the terms of this agreement. We're not going to him saying, hey, if I promise you that I'm going to do all these things, then you have to give me your spirit. It's not us who's making up this covenant. The covenant comes from a loving God who is also our parent who's saying, I'm giving you my son as the model, and as you combine with Christ, then you can grow to become more like him over time until you attain unto that level of perfection through him, not because of you. Now, there's one other situation going on here that we have to look at. Notice he says that we're willing to stand as a witness of God in those situations. Where do we normally use the word witness? Where do we come in contact with that context of a witness? For most, you would think of a courtroom. Well, if I'm being called to be a witness of God, I'm sitting on a witness stand 
What is the implication? What's going on? What, what am I witnessing for? If I'm a witness of God, there are a variety of ways you could take this. I'm just going to take one direction here. It's not the only one. But one of the implications possibly is that God is being put on trial. What is God being accused of in our world today? I think that there are many who would say, well, he doesn't exist, or yeah, he exists, but he's not powerful, or he doesn't know everything, or he doesn't love, or he doesn't care, or he doesn't answer my prayers, or he can't stop pain, he can't prevent abuse, he can't, he doesn't, he isn't, all of these accusations are being pointed at God, and here's the Lord saying, are you willing to take the witness stand for God, not just when it's convenient, but especially when it's hard, to be able to stand and say, I know God lives. I know that he is a God of power and love and mercy and justice and judgment and creation and all these attributes that God has, and I know that he hears and answers every prayer, even though the world is accusing him of not. The problem isn't God. The problem is our perspective of what a God should do and how a God should answer prayers or, or handle a world like ours, and so it's our opportunity to sit on the witness stand now in the face of great adversity and say, from my own experience, with, with so many years of, of seeing his hand in my life and learning about how a true God works with me through this process of striving to become more like the Savior, here's the, here's the, uh, the beautiful conclusion. If I and you are willing to sit on the witness stand for God right now, the promise is pretty sure that Jesus will take that same witness stand for us when it really matters. If you read DNC section uh, 45, verse 3, uh, he, he makes it very clear that he sits in that witness stand for us, defending us in front of God with eternally significant outcomes on the line. Uh, now look at the look at the conclusion here. Verse 10, back to Alma. Now I say unto you, if this be the desire of your hearts, what have you against being baptized in the name of the Lord as a witness before him, there's that word again, that you have entered into a covenant with him that you will serve him and keep his commandments. Now we add this other element down here, serve him and keep his commandments, and then you get this incredible promise at the very end that we will have his spirit more abundantly upon us. Now, brothers and sisters, it's one thing to enter into the covenant with God as a witness that you're, you're willing to do all these things. It's another to stay in that covenant with God. And what do you do when you mess up? <laughs> I don't know about you, <laughs> I'll just speak for myself, there has never and I mean never, zero percent, ever been a time on Sunday when I've gone to church and sat in the, the chapel there and thought to myself as we're singing the sacrament hymn, huh, 
Now that's kind of weird. I, I think I can pass on the sacrament today. I, I don't need the sacrament because I, I've done it. I'm good. I, I don't need Jesus this week. I, I'm good. I, we, we can pass it on this week. There's never been a time where that thought has even remotely tried to enter my mind because every single week I come to that table and I think, please forgive me again. How many times am I going to have to mess up in some of these realms and in my my character flaws? Lord, I feel it. My heart is prone to wander. It, it, it's struggling and, and it doesn't seem to be going away. Now, it That process gets refined over time, but the fact is I have to keep going back, and when I partake of that sacrament, I'm establishing a new covenant every week with Christ. Every week I'm saying, I can't do it. I failed. We can do this. We've got this. And brothers and sisters, that's the beauty of our message to the world, is not to say, everybody out there, get perfect and then come unto Christ. The message of our missionaries and of our mommies and our daddies and our leaders is come unto Christ and be perfected in him. It's we, we partake of his goodness as we enter into that covenant with him. So as we conclude our conversation about the covenant that people made at the Waters of Mormon, it's all about love. We have in verse 21, Mosiah 18, their hearts knit together in unity and in love one towards another. Love is the essence of the baptismal covenant and really of all covenants that we make with God and with others in the covenantal community. Now, there's this really amazing, beautiful part in the Book of Mormon the tightest concentration of the name Mormon shows up in this chapter, verse 30. And I just imagine Mormon, when he's writing this portion, getting to use his name six times. And I'm going to read the verse, and then I'll talk about what some LDS scholars propose as the meaning of the name Mormon. Now, it came to pass that all this was done in Mormon, yea, by the waters of Mormon, in the forest, that was near the waters of Mormon, yea, the place of Mormon, the waters of Mormon, the forests of Mormon. How beautiful are they to the eyes of them who are come to the knowledge of the Redeemer, yea, even how blessed are they, for they shall sing to his praise forever. So there's been a proposal that the word Mormon actually comes from two Egyptian words. The Egyptian word for love, actually the word Mary, the Egyptian word Mary means love, and mon, which means enduring or everlasting. And if this proposal is correct, it would mean that Mormon's name would read as love endures forever. And of course, whose love are we talking about? It's the love of God. It would then mean that the Book of Mormon really would be translated as the Book of the love of God endures forever. And that is the entire point of the Book of Mormon. And you can just see, I think, Mormon just delighting in summarizing this covenantal community and what they did. And he uses this name six times, love endures forever. Beautiful name. Now, 
Alma baptized Helam, and then there are 450 people out there. By the way, this won't get you into heaven, and some of you won't care about this, but that's okay. Others will, will find this fascinating. In the original manuscript and in the printer's manuscript, the name Helam, the first time it appears here in chapter 18, is actually Helaman. And for some reason, then the subsequent ones here are listed as the, the A-N is crossed out. John Gilbert, the typesetter, he changes it to Helam, but the name in the original is actually Helaman. That's not going to get you into heaven, but there you go. So he baptizes all these people, and then they're warned of the Lord there at the very end of chapter 18 that they need to depart. So if we look at the map, he's just outside of the city of Nephi and Shilom at the waters of Mormon when King Noah sends the men to come and destroy them. He leaves there and they traveled many days journey into the wilderness. And they go to a place called, uh, and they call it Helam. In the original manuscript, they call it Helaman, but Helam's actually a good name because he's got all these people who have spent at least two years living in iniquity, they've now repented, they've got problems, and Alma's trying to help Helam. Okay, that was a dumb joke, but <laughs> so that name actually works really well. So what happens next is King Noah had sent out this army of men to go and destroy these people. Um, Michael Wilcox shared the example once of, of Noah blinders, of putting on these blinding glasses for people, and he had gotten all of his society to put these blinders on. And through the course of these chapters, you get people taking off those blinding glasses so they can see the light. So 450 people have already taken off their Noah blinders. Now in chapter 19, you get a group of men that come out to kill these people, and, and we wonder if Gideon was in that exact group and in that moment realizes taking off his blinder saying, wait a minute, what was I about to do? I was about to kill innocent men, women, and children because of they disagree with Noah at this point. And all of a sudden, their best friend becomes their worst enemy, Noah, and they see it. They see it clearly, and Gideon, this mighty man, large and mighty man, draws his sword and swears, I am going to kill King Noah. Well, that's a change. He goes back and we have this nice sword fight. By the way, what does King Noah look like? Most of you are thinking of Arnold Freeberg's painting and you picture a Jabba Fat. the Hutt character sitting up there. Fat, dumb, and happy. Yeah, and he's, anyway. The reality is, is Gideon goes and he has a sword fight with uh, Noah and doesn't prevail. Gideon's a large and mighty man. Noah runs away. Now there could have been guards involved there we don't really know. I'm just saying don't have art always dictate how you read scripture because artistic interpretation is just that. It's artistic for different reasons. So he runs, he gets up onto his tower, and here comes Gideon, and now the moment. Look at verse uh, 6. The king cast his eyes round about towards the land of Shemlon, and behold, the army of the Lamanites were within the borders of the land. So now the king cries to Gideon, oh, please, look at the wording. Gideon, spare me, for the Lamanites are upon us. They will destroy us, yea, they will destroy my people. Now, can you picture Mormon, the abridger, at that point? He's 
put these words down on the plates, I can picture him pausing. I don't know what he actually did, but I can picture him pausing saying, oh, you deceptive devil, you. (laughs) He's saying, Noah's making it sound like he really has concern and care for his people, having just sent an army to destroy 450 of them, right? And so look at what Mormon does. He jumps in verse 8. Now the king was not so much concerned about his people as he was about his own life. Nevertheless, Gideon did spare his life. So we see that Noah keeps filling this role as a type or a shadow of the devil himself, the guy who is only interested in one person and one person alone, the guy who in the beginning up in the the council of heaven said, Father, here am I, send me, I'll save all of them, but the glory be mine. So Noah's filling this role. So here we go. We come down off of the tower. Here's the group of Nephites fleeing this direction. Here comes this group of Lamanites chasing them. Where is the perfect place for a devilish type or shadow or symbol to place himself? Well, look at verse 9. The king commanded the people that they should flee before the Lamanites, and he himself did go before them. Here's Noah right here. Why is that the perfect place for a guy symbolizing devilish attributes to be? Who's the last person that's going to get killed? Hmm. Oh, and by the way, if this were Captain Moroni's story, where would Captain Moroni have been? We always use Captain Moroni as a a symbol and a type in many ways for Christ. Where would he have put himself? This, This isn't hard to figure out describe this po- this portion of your population. Well, you're going to have the old, the feeble, the sick, the afflicted, the really young, the pregnant. You're going to have your most defenseless part of your population in harm's way. The first ones to die are going to be the ones who are least likely capable of defending themselves. And Noah doesn't care, because they're just a human shield for him. So what happens in this next verse is the Lamanite army has now advanced to the point where it now looks like this, and they are killing people, and it's, it's ugly. Noah knows that. So then he gives what has become one of my least favorite verses of scripture anywhere. I hate this thing. Verse 11, now it came to pass that the king commanded them that all should leave their wives and their children and flee before the Lamanites. Gratefully, at that moment, there were, verse 12, there were many that would not leave them, but would rather stay and perish with them, and the rest left their wives and children and fled. So in that moment, many take off their Noah blinders and and see clearly, and it's like, what? No, I'm not leaving my family. Brothers and sisters, the question here to consider is, are there some things that are actually way worse than dying or way worse than death? I would suggest to you, from from my context, that leaving behind a family would be way worse than dying myself. So you can picture what, what these men that did choose to follow Noah had to do. They're going to be putting children down. They're going to be pushing their wife away 
and running after King Noah to safety, right? Now, I let me be honest. I really don't care personally about King Noah because he died like over 2,000 years ago and he's not part of my life. But the reason this story is so relevant is because we live in a world where the voice of King Noah is simply giving volume to a message from the devil, and that message hasn't changed. The devil is still to this day crying out, men, leave your women and children, follow me out into the wilderness, and there are lots of ways to describe what that wilderness is. Um, And unfortunately, the devil's not just yelling to the men in our day, he's yelling to the women, and he's yelling to the teenagers and the young single adults and the new marrieds, leave everything that you valued, everything that you've built, and follow me out into the wilderness. Verse 11 is unfortunately alive and well today because the call is the same. It's to forsake covenant connection. It's to forsake things that are actually worth dying for to go out in personal pursuits, self-fulfillment as opposed to covenantal obligations and connections. Can you picture this moment when these men with Noah run out here and they get out into the wilderness and they're quote-unquote safe? Can you picture this moment, them catching their breath and, wow, we did it, we're safe. Good job, guys, and giving each other high fives. And then can you picture as the the fight or flight adrenaline rush starts to leave and they settle in and and reality starts to hit them and for them it's not a moment of taking off the glasses but this slow realization of, wait a minute, what have I done? What, What do I have to live for anymore? Is this called safety, what I now have compared to what I left behind? And they have this moment at some point in the near future where they're talking to King Noah saying, we're going back. We're going to go back. And he's like, no, 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 no. And finally, they get to that moment where every eye turns to Noah and says, wait a minute. You're my enemy. You're not my friend. You convinced me that you had my best interest in mind. Now it's very clear you didn't. You had your best interest in mind. They come in on him and they kill him. Uh, They burn him, which was prophesied by Abinadi. And then that long walk back, that long journey back to this place where they had forsaken their families, thinking they're going to find a slaughtered group of people. These men have a long walk home from that point of discovery. And have you ever pictured that moment, however it looked, I don't know, as they come to their door that night, honey, it's me, I'm back, knowing what they had done earlier, knowing the treachery, the the betrayal, the worst kind that you you could commit, and now they're coming home. Here's my point. Who needs the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ more that night? These men 
or their wives who had been betrayed. And uh, I, I don't know that we can fully quantify this. All I know is that both groups desperately need the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ for completely different reasons, but neither one of them is going to be able to do what they need to do on their own. Both of them need the help of the Lord Jesus Christ to be able to start reestablishing some level of trust in that family relationship. Okay, now, here's, here's what we're going to end up with. Two separate people that previously were joined under King Noah. Now they're going to be separated, two different civilizations, Limhi's and Alma's. So when those men return, King Noah's son Limhi, who recognized that his dad was mm, not exactly doing the things that he needed to do, he now takes over, but he takes over in a period from the get-go of being in bondage because the Nephites had sent their fair daughters to stop that Lamanite army from slaughtering everybody, but they've enslaved this entire group, so they're now in bondage. The, the thing that is hard to keep straight sometimes is you read chapters 21 and 22, and then you read 23 and 24, and it makes it sound almost like, okay, this is happening at the beginning of the year, and then this happens at the end of the year, or something like that. The reality is, is chapters 21 and 22, specifically chapter 21, is covering 24 years. This is a long time to be in absolute bondage and slavery to the, to the Lamanites. Now, watch what happens as we, as we progress into this story and then contrast it with this story. These are, these are stories of bondage, because these guys are going to be brought into bondage as well. It's almost, hmm, it's almost like Mormon saw our day and said, I see a lot of bondage situations, slaveries to all kinds of different things, spiritual, political, physical, mental, emotional, um, addictions, all kinds of bondages in the latter days. And so we get two contrasting stories side by side about getting into bondage and how to get back out of bondage, and this is beautiful. So watch. Limhi's group in chapter 21, look what they say in verse 5. Now the afflictions of the Nephites were great, and there was market, no way that they could deliver themselves out of their hands, for the Lamanites had surrounded them on every side. Brothers and sisters, there is no way that we can deliver ourselves out of certain bondages because we're surrounded on every side, okay? That's their conclusion. They're looking around, and we don't know at what point in the 24 years that this actually uh, occurs, the order of these events. We just know it's covering 24 years total in this chapter. Look at verse 6, came to pass that the people began to murmur with the king because of their afflictions. They began to be desirous to go against the, the Lamanites to battle, and they did afflict the king sorely with their complaints. Therefore, he granted unto them that they should do according to their desires. Did you notice 
There was no way to deliver ourselves, but it gets so awful, so bad, we plead with the king, he's like, okay, fine, go fight the Lamanites. So they did. They get their their armies together and they went forth in verse seven against the Lamanites, but verse eight, the Lamanites did beat them and drove them back and slew many of them. And now there was a great mourning and lamentation among the people of Limhi, the widow mourning for her husband, the son and the daughter mourning for their father and the brothers for their brethren. Did you notice what just happened? What happened with their bondage? It now got worse. What used to be bad is now going to be worse. The Lamanites are going to be treating them even worse. They now have fewer men to take care of the needs, the physical needs of that society and that people. We have wives and children and parents and and relatives who are now mourning the loss of those who have died in this effort to try to free themselves, and it's worse. So what should we do? Well, I've got an idea. Verse 11, it came to pass that their continual cries did stir up the remainder of the people of Limhi to anger against the Lamanites. That's never a good motivator to go to war in anger. And they went again to battle, and they were driven back, suffering much loss. What just happened to their bondage? They tried to fix it again. Now they've just made it worse. We've lost more people. The Lamanites are going to be even more vigilant and more more vengeful against us as, as, as slave taskmasters, right? So what should we do? Verse 12, yea, they went again, even the third time, and suffered in the like manner, and those that were not slain returned again to the city of Nephi. I think you see the point. There really is no way to deliver themselves out of bondage, and every time they tried to deliver themselves back to our covenant connection, when I try to do it all alone, when I say, God, I got this one today, no need for your help, I'll, I'll let you know when I need you again, but I, I'm good, I got it today, all we do is make our existing problem not go away, but introduce more problems. We make our bondage worse. In our, in our best efforts and our, and our zeal for making it better, we make it worse. Now, you'll remember back in uh, Mosiah chapter 12 when Abinadi came to them after two years, when they were in, the, all of Noah's people were in worse uh, iniquity, he told them, you will be brought into bondage. And if after being driven and smitten, you still choose not to repent and be humble, then God will utterly destroy you from off the face of the earth. Limhi's people is working their way towards fulfilling that prophecy. Gratefully, they didn't get there. For many of the people, they they end up getting killed in these efforts, but the remainder, you'll notice in verse 13, they finally humbled themselves and submitted to the Lamanites, saying, okay, well, we're not going to try that ever again. We've had three fails in these attempts. And then look closely at verse 14. There comes a time when hopefully these people hit rock bottom, bottom of the barrel, and they realize, verse 14, they did humble themselves even in the depths of humility, and they did cry mightily to God. Yea, even all the day long did they cry unto their God that he would deliver them out of their afflictions. That verse right there, 14, 
is worth studying over and over and over again in the latter days for individuals and for families and for leaders. How do we turn our hearts to God and how do we completely swallow up our will in his and cry mightily to him that he would deliver us from bondage? I find it interesting that it's at that point where Mormon throws in verse 15. Now the Lord was slow to hear their cry because of their iniquities. Nevertheless, the Lord did hear their cries and began to soften the hearts of the Lamanites that they began to ease their burdens, yet the Lord did not see fit to deliver them out of bondage. Many of you have loved ones, maybe it's you yourself who have struggled with past addictions or or layers of bondage to, to certain behaviors or substances or struggles of any kind, where these people may have to wrestle with some of these things for a long time, uh, but the Lord did hear their cry. That's the key, is now they're no longer going to be wrestling with these struggles alone. Doesn't mean they're going to be perfect, doesn't mean they're never going to mess up again, it means they're not struggling alone. They have the Lord with them. So it's at that point that God inspires a group in uh, Zarahemla to start inquiring. So up in Zarahemla on our map, we have King Mosiah, who is King Benjamin's son, who has a man named Ammon come to him and say, hey, what about those people, our relatives? They left like 80 years ago and went back to the land of Nephi and nobody's heard anything from them. Can we go and check on them? And so Ammon, along with 15 other strong men, leave Zarahemla here in the north on the map. They go south to a place that is clearly not friendly for Nephites to help release this group of Nephites from bondage to bring them back to the safety of Zarahemla. Looks like a a symbolic overlay, potentially, of the plan of salvation, of of Jesus' whole mission, with Ammon being a type or shadow of Christ, with 15 strong men who come down, so to speak, and their whole mission is to try to help people get out of bondage and to bring them safely home. Hmm, I wonder if there's anything there that we could apply in in the latter days, right? Now, uh, Limhi's group, with the help of the Lord alone, because they couldn't do it themselves, God sends the help that they didn't have themselves. They're inspired to get the Lamanite guards drunk. They then flee. The the Lamanite guards wake up the next morning, start chasing them, and they get a day into this chase, and they get lost, like so lost that they not only don't know where the people of Limhi went, but they don't even know where they came from. They can't figure out how to even get back home to the city of Nephi or or Shemlon or wherever they've come from. They are totally lost. And so Limhi's group is being led on this map all the way back to Zarahemla, and this Lamanite army is wandering for days in the wilderness, and lo and behold, they come across this group that they didn't know was out there, Amulon, that we didn't even talk about in this lesson back in chapter 20, and uh, then they wander, and on the map they find this city, Helam. Now we enter this contrast with uh, Alma's group. 
Look at chapter 23, verse 20. And it came to pass that they, the people of Alma and Helam, they did multiply and prosper exceedingly in the land of Helam, and they built a city which they called the city of Helaman, or Helam in this, in this case. So, 24 years of prospering, of peace, of growing. They, they established a covenant connection with God 24 years ago by the time this army comes out of the wilderness. They've been having a wonderful time compared to their neighbors who didn't come and make that covenant 24 years ago, who have been in this bondage that's been getting worse and worse and worse for 24 years before they finally got released. So you'll see the contrast in uh, Alma's group here. Look at verse 21. Nevertheless, the Lord seeth fit to chasten his people, yea, he trieth their patience and their faith. This is one of the reasons why God is being put on trial by the world, is because life is hard and a God who happens to also be our loving parent, his whole goal isn't to try to make our life as easy as possible. His goal is to try to help us to grow into a level of perfection that can only come through certain experiences. So he trieth their patience and their faith. Look at verse 22. Nevertheless, so put greater emphasis on what comes next, not the trials of my faith so much as whosoever putteth his trust in him, the same shall be lifted up at the last day. Yea, and thus it was with this people. So let's look at a couple of interesting phrases here about the covenant path. We have the Abrahamic covenant, which is God's promises to give us prosperity, priesthood, posterity, if we keep the commandments, which is the Mosaic covenant. I'm just gonna write this down real quick. So what we wanna look at here is, God has offered all of us the Abrahamic promise all of us, as children of Abraham or adopted in. Now, that's his obligations to us, right? To offer us salvation, to make it available. Mosaic Covenant, which was revealed initially to Moses, Mount Sinai, it's been updated by uh, modern day revelation, other prophets. The basic phrase is, if you keep my commandments, you shall prosper in the land. What happens here? Well, they did not keep the commandments. The people of Noah, did not keep the commandments, they did not prosper. And as they tried to force themselves into prosperity, it got worse and worse and worse. Whereas the people of Alma, they had actually had kept the commandments, they prospered in the land. Now we learned, as Tyler was talking about, God's gonna give us trials. We cannot grow and develop without trials. And believe me, I would rather teach lessons about trials than actually having to do them. But it is a reality. The key phrase of the Abrahamic covenant is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here's one of the places in the Book of Mormon it shows up. Right here in Mosiah chapter 23, verse 23. And actually the verse before we read the word trust. We put our trust in God. And the Abrahamic covenant, and this phrase is all about we can trust God. And if so, we'll be able to prosper again. It says, and this is Mormon speaking, I will show unto you that they were brought into bondage and none could deliver them. There's no way out. None could deliver them but the Lord their God, yea, even the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Meaning this is the God of deliverance. This is the God you can trust. This is the same God that took the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. So wherever you are in your life, if you feel like you're stuck, just know you can trust God. 
He will be faithful to his covenant to deliver you as you continue to pursue keeping the commandments. You do have the promise that you will be able to prosper in the land. So now, let's watch this, let's watch this unfold with these people. It's fascinating to compare and contrast what happened in chapters 21 and 22 with what's happening with this group. So 23 is setting up this whole foundation for them being brought into bondage. And some of you might be wondering, why is this happening? Well, remember back in chapter 12? Abinadi promised all of King Noah's people, and these guys were in that category as well, you're all going to be brought into bondage. And for some reason, God doesn't let his prophet's words go unfulfilled. And so even though they've made a covenant 24 years ago, for, for some reason known to God, and I think it's tied in here with verse 21, uh, they will be brought into bondage, but it doesn't mean the bondage has to be miserable and lengthy and drawn out. So let's look at this, chapter 23. They haven't even been brought into bondage yet. The, the Lamanites and, and Amulon and his group haven't even made it into the city of Helam yet. The people saw them coming, fled out of the fields, came into the city, came to their prophet, Alma, and said, Alma, what do we do? It took these people 24 years to finally get humble. These people started humble. They go to, the, to, to their prophet and say, what would the Lord have us do? And notice chapter 23, verse 27. Alma went forth and stood among them and exhorted them that they should not be frightened, but that they should remember the Lord their God and he would deliver them. I see this repeated over and over and over again with President Nelson today. That's what he does with us today. That's what the prophets, seers, and revelators and other leaders of our church are doing. They're hushing our fears, not to say, oh, nothing bad's happening. They're acknowledging the bad things that are happening, but they're pointing us to God. That's the power of what a prophet does. Look at verse 28. Therefore, they hushed their fears and began to cry unto the Lord that he would soften the hearts of the Lamanites and that they would spare them and their wives and their children. They're turning to the God of deliverance even before they're in bondage. They know it's coming. They know tr uh, troubling times and, and chaotic issues are going to arise in the very near future, and they're already turning to God. There's a lot to like about this pattern here. So he, he, Amulon and this army come in, and they now have Alma's people in bondage. Look at chapter 24, look at verse 10, it came to pass that so great were their afflictions that they began to cry mightily to God. This isn't fun. They don't like what's going on and there are things happening in the world today in 2020 that people don't like. It's not fun, it feels oppressive and, and difficult and they're crying mightily to God. So then Amulon commands them not to pray out loud so they just cry in their hearts. Now look at verse 13, 14, and 15. If you want an incredible experience, sit down with your family or loved ones or with yourself and the Holy Ghost with a journal in front of you and study slowly and repeatedly and carefully verse 13, 14, and 15 and see if Mormon didn't encapsulate the goodness of God in your life. 
I could share so many stories about things that have happened in my life where I've experienced this, uh, this incredible phenomenon of having burdens placed upon my shoulders that should have crushed me, but somehow I'm able to stand up under the weight, and not just stand up under the weight, but stand up under the weight with, with joy, and realizing this should be painful, this should be heavy and hard, but it's okay because I've got the Lord on my side and he's the one who's strengthening me. It's in his strength that I can do all things. It's not on my own power alone. So we would just encourage you to go really, really deep into 13, 14, and 15. And then verse 16, it came to pass that so great was their faith and their patience that the voice of the Lord came unto them again saying, be of good comfort for on the morrow I will deliver you out of bondage. You'll notice he didn't have to send anyone in from the outside to to save them because they relied on God from the inside to save them from bondage. And so this whole group of people ends up getting safely back to Zarahemla just like Limhi's group safely got back to Zarahemla. At the end of these stories, brothers and sisters, The point is, I can't do it alone. I need to turn to God. I can choose to suffer long and hard before I turn to God, or I can choose to turn to God right away or something in between, but when I turn to God, he doesn't just take away my problems, but he strengthens me in order to be uh, brought to, to safety and wrapped in the arms of his love. Some of you are familiar with the words of a, of a song that encapsulates how I feel as I study these chapters on, on bondage and, and release from bondage. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I want you to know that I know that God is in his heavens. Yes, there are difficult things going on in the world, but there is a prophet in Israel today, and God is speaking to us through him and through all of his other chosen and appointed servants, and if we turn to God in humility and rely on the words that we're getting and the direction we're getting through his chosen servants, I testify that we will be released from bondage of all varieties, some of them soon, some of them late, but we're going to become perfected through Christ in the process either way. We love you guys. Thank you for making time to love the Lord, to spend time learning, studying the gospel. We appreciate you watching this video. We take the time to read all of your comments. We really appreciate all the enthusiasm. Keep commenting. If you have questions, put them there. We try to respond to everything. And we just encourage you during this time of your life, remember the Lord loves you. He will deliver you. And the things we've talked about that have been preserved in the scriptures, they're for our day and they're true. Spread light and goodness. Know that you're loved.